Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 10, 35 to 45. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right or left side is not for me to grant, but these places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. But... Um, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When I was in the Navy, I served with the Marine Corps, 5th Battalion, 10th Marines in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And in my three and a half years there, I had two immediate supervisors, two chiefs. The first chief I had was somebody who was what today's leadership world would call a transactional leader. That's somebody who was very organized, very task-oriented. Somebody who said, okay, today I need you to accomplish A, B, and C, would set metrics for each of those accomplishments, would ensure that everything ran according to time and on schedule. I think the sort of typical military mind that you think about when you consider what a military leader is. He was extraordinarily effective at what he did. He went on and got promoted to the next rank and ascended up and all of us in the battalion aid station knew that it was exactly because of us. We, it was clear that we in the team, what he would call it, was actually, were actually just pawns in his way of manipulating the situation and manipulating his world to achieve the most desired outcome for himself. Okay? This, I think, is typical what we see in the world today of leaders, people who utilize those they say under them 
in order to achieve what it is they're trying to achieve. They couch it in terms of the mission, and sometimes they really are dedicated to that, but oftentimes there's a sense of self-aggrandizement that goes with it. My second chief was somebody not like the first one. He made lists, and he knew the mission, and he guided us towards it, but what he was mostly concerned about was us. He first wanted to ensure that we were developing in character, that we were learning to lead by becoming better men. And the extension of that was that the way we led was amplified. The way we led was enhanced. He often would, and in doing so, we would sometimes miss deadlines. We would sometimes not get things accomplished because he'd say, no, let's go back and make sure that you're developing before we seek to achieve this actual mission point, this actual task. And in an attempt to do that, which we would often run into some trouble, he would run interference from us. He would lay his own reputation on the line with his superiors, who often had the more transactional, military-oriented type of leadership style, for us to develop us. Now, we accomplished our mission under the first chief. We would have went to war and fought for the first chief, but we wouldn't have died for him. It was the second chief. We would have done anything for the one we knew was most concerned about who we were and placed himself in a second best position to ensure that those who went after him were developed, were better leaders, and were more capable of leading on down the line. Now, today's sermon is about leadership. Maybe you don't consider yourself a leader, but I would like to push back on that a little bit because we all in some way are in a leadership capacity. It just might not look like what you expect. For instance, I mean, clearly some of us are bosses or supervisors. We have a clear leadership sphere that we're involved in. Some of us work in ministry. Some of us are children's leaders. Some of us are in other aspects of the church's ministry, and so we too would be considered leaders. Every parent in the church is a leader. You're leading and shepherding your flock, literally your flock, into Christ-likeness. Grandparents, you have a responsibility to lead the family as well as those who have gone before have more experience and understand how life really is, the wisdom that you carry, and you pass down to those below you that is you expressing and showing your leadership. You know, leaders move others towards a vision of something better by making ideas reality. This calling to make the invisible visible is one of the same calling of every Christian to reflect the glory of God and encourage others to do the same. In this sense, the term Christian and leader are synonymous. We know what God's will is. We see it in God's word, and we shepherd others through our example and through our encouragement to achieve that end. And that is the calling on every single Christian, every single believer, every single follower of Christ in this world while we are here is a type of leader, one who leads by example. Now, of course, part of the reason we don't say that we're leaders is because we have the world's idea of what leadership is. This high-powered CEO-type person who has all these little minions doing what he wants and gets things done, right? This may be this 20th century or capitalist sort of idea, right? Turn-of-the-century person. But Jesus modeled leadership in his life a lot differently than that, didn't he? And today's text gives us a glimpse into Jesus' mindset about how we should lead. Now remember, when I'm talking about this leadership, again, I want to reiterate This is not simply us being leaders at work. This is not simply us being leaders even in our volunteer life. As a Christian, you are in some sense a leader. 
And so this is applicable to all of us, and the way we lead matters. Christ-like leadership starts with humility, requires sacrifice, is expressed in servanthood, and is motivated and only motivated by love. You see, we need to recognize our leadership position with our own unique sphere and demonstrate that humility, sacrifice, servanthood, and love, the love that Christ has showed us as he leads us. Otherwise, we'll forget that people are watching. We'll say, well, I'm not a leader. I'm just a follower, so no one's really paying attention. But every parent in the room knows that they're paying attention. Everybody who interacts with somebody who's not a believer, if we stand at all firm for our faith, knows that they are paying attention. We might fail to live up to our God-given calling to pour ourselves into others. Again and again, from Deuteronomy 6 to instilling the youth with the faith, to 2 Timothy 2, where Paul encourages Timothy to continue to pour into men who pour into men who pour into men and continue it on. Or three, and perhaps this is the most tragic, we see this in the church too, we follow leaders that look more like the world than like Christ. Big problem. We might even miss out on the joy of living in God's will. Have you ever been there? 100% in God's will. You're right where you're supposed to be. That is what life is. It's what life is intended to be. So turn with me to Mark 10, 35 through 45, and we're going to pick through the verses. I have some points that we're going to learn here. I did go over them on the thesis statement, but you're going to hear them again. So verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, it is actually James and John's mother who goes to Jesus. Now, if any of you know anything about a Jewish mother, she has a way of getting things accomplished, okay? And I think what James and John, and I don't think it started with her. It doesn't say this. This is me inferring, but it doesn't say this, but it seems like James and John kind of said, Mom, come here, I need you to talk to Jesus. I need you to... Her name is Salami, by the way, or Salome, if you don't want to sound like a delicatessen. But so she comes with her sons. Lord, let my sons do this. This is what she asks. He says, what do you want me to do? And they replied, let, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your glory. So they were going right to Christ and asking for leadership positions in the kingdom of heaven. When the Messiah would come and would establish the reign on earth, they wanted to be at the left and right hand of Christ. Now think of what they're asking. We exalt Christ because of what the scripture says about him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Okay, With all authority, with all divinity, with all power, as the righteous and eternal second person of the Trinity, because he belongs there. And here is James and John coming to Jesus and asking to sit in that same place. They were really making an audacious request. Were they not? Yeah, they definitely were. Especially when you claim it for yourself. I think they tried to hide it under, let's have mom ask. But in the end, it was clear that they wanted it because here they asked him. He goes on to say, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what it is that you are asking of me to sit at my left and my right hand. He says, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they say, we can. Now, a little point of clarity here. The baptism that Jesus is talking about is not about the baptism that we just witnessed here this morning. The word baptizo means to dip or to change. So it was a word that was used in like dyeing fabrics. White fabric would go into a vat. It would be baptized in the Greek word, and it would come out a different color. 
It also has this sense of um, an event that it occur, can occur to somebody. And sometimes that event is couched in a negative light, okay? Something bad has happened. Baptism by fire, we say it in English. It's the same idea here in the Greek. Jesus is saying, you don't know what I'm about to go through. And so for you to come and ask, to get to a position that is given only by my Father, as we shall see, is a dangerous thing. Because he knew what it was. And listen to their answer. We can. You got to love them because we think the same thing, that we can do exactly what God is asking us to do as well. I mean, even the Jews in, uh, in the book of Exodus, they're standing at the base of the mountain. God is speaking audibly, audibly. He tells them what he wants. They say, whatever, we'll do it. Yes, we can. Just talk to Moses and don't talk to us because it's so terrifying. It's as if their personal comfort outweighed what it is God was actually asking them to do. Sure, whatever you want, whatever you want. They minimized what it takes to follow God well and to follow him through suffering, which is what God is calling each and every one of us to do. Brothers, sisters, God is calling our Ukrainian brothers and sisters right now to suffer, even unto death. This is the moment. And while we should be praying and we should be sending help and we should be doing what we can do as brothers and sisters, in the end, we can rejoice because this is a pathway to glory. This isn't some romantic notion of warriorhood coming from a previous military member. This is something that's straight out of the Bible. Suffering is the pathway to peace. And as soon as our American church, as soon as we embrace that suffering, the sooner we will become the Christ that we are so desperately seeking to become like. Jesus, make me more like you. He calls us to suffer. Well, not that much like you. There was a time, Perpetua and Felicitas, where martyrdom was glorified because they believed what Jesus said, because they believed what the Bible preaches. And oftentimes, martyrs would go into the fire, would jump onto the fire because they understood suffering is the pathway to peace. James and John didn't get that. All they saw was the glory and not the way to get there. Jesus, knowing what was in store for both of them and the disciples, tells them that if they knew, they would not be asking this. I mean, it's pretty clear. Jesus said to them as we move on, in fact, you will drink. You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant, with James and John. Their behavior embodied that typical worldly attitude of sinful ambition. But as leaders who follow the example of our author, our pioneer, as we heard about, the pioneer of our faith, Jesus, we cannot lead this way. We cannot demonstrate Christ in our life. We cannot set the godly example in this way. The starting place for our leadership must not be self-aggrandizement. The starting place for our leadership needs to be humility. That's our first lesson for this morning, humility. This is a lesson, honestly, friends. This is a, a topic that we could preach every Sunday for the rest of our lives because it's impossible to achieve, and it is everything Jesus is asking us to do. Humility when we, you know, I was going to put in here, consider 
are you being humble? The answer is probably no, because if you're thinking about the humility that you're trying to achieve, it's evidence that you're already at this place of self-centeredness. You're already at this place where maybe I'm not. So I'd encourage all of us to recognize that humility is really an ideal, that every moment of our lives, it's this idea of picking up our cross, denying ourselves. It's a daily, momentary, repeating proposition for each and every one of us. You know, it's hard to find humble people, let alone humble leaders these days. I mean, how many of the leaders in the church here in America, big churches too, it seems it's always big churches because they're in the forefront. Satan knows those are the churches that we need to get to. Because if we get those churches, we can make every other church look stupid. We can discount everything every church teaches because if those are the leaders that are teaching and they fall, what about everybody else? Often, in not a, you know, everywhere, we see human ambitions. In my, um, in my living room, we call it the lodge, we have a poster from the World's Fair. I think it was like 1915 or maybe, it was Art Deco, that's all I know. But there's a woman um, holding this like industrialized, like industrial revolution motif, and across it it says, I will. I will. About human achievement and the ability of the human mind and soul and heart to achieve that which God has already said we can't do on our own. Yet can we continue to try. Tower of Babel, let us build. Let us ascend to heaven. Human ambition. Self-serving choices. Political calculations. Getting people to do what we want. I hear that all the time. What is a leader? Someone who can convince someone else to do what they want. Sounds like a manipulator. Sounds like a narcissist to me. And there's actually something called the, um, the evil triad of leadership. It includes some of these ideas, manipulating people to get. That's not what Jesus shows us. Jesus shows us it's about the other person first. But look at James and John's approach. In case there's any question about their motives, it comes pretty obvious when the disciples become indignant with their request. Indignant with their request. The boys were self-serving, you see. They were seeking to achieve glory for themselves, likely utilizing their mother as that, like I said, manipulative tool. And that's what some of us will do, won't we? And it's subtle. This is what's so crazy about my heart. I don't know about you. I will convince myself and believe it. And then suddenly recognize, how did I believe that? Or someone else will say, are you really believe that? The sin in our heart is so subtle and will lead us to believe things that are clearly not true. We'll justify our behavior in the way that we do things, the way we parent, the way we lead, the way we interact with each other, the way we vote, the way we whatever, everything. But Jesus is constantly and always asking us to evaluate our heart. So for the Christian, our entire life needs to be rooted in this humility because we reflect the humility of Jesus. One of my favorite passages here, Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8, says, Who, speaking of Jesus, being in the very nature of God, this is God himself, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. If there's anybody in the world, in all of existence, that has the right to say, I'm in charge, (laughs) and what I say goes, it's God. It could be a terrifying prospect if we don't recognize that God is an eternally and infinitely loving being. He did not count equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing and took on the very nature of a servant. A servant being made in human likeness. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to death on a cross. You see, Jesus was made to be human, was willing to be made human. This is something difficult because we think pretty much good things. We think of a lot of ourselves, you know. It's like humanity, we're the top of the creation. God placed us in the center of the garden because we're the pinnacle. But in the end, when we say that we're the pinnacle, we exalt ourselves and shorten the distance between who God really is and who we are. We can't do that. We need to fight back the idea, against the idea that God is like us. In some way, God is so, in lots of ways, God is totally other. High and exalted and lifted up and not like sinful man. Who Paul here calls servants. He's made in the form of a servant. We're servants. We're servants. When we consider that truth and we consider that God in the flesh deemed to become a human being like us, a servant, it's a remarkable. He was willing to endure suffering and ridicule. I watched a movie last night called, I don't know if I should drop this, but anyway. It's called The Seventh Seal. It's from 1957. It's a Swedish movie. I had to watch it with English subtitles, but it's about a man who comes back from the Crusades and he ends up playing chess with death for his life. And it goes on and talks about many themes, about religion and faith and hope, futility. But it talks about the willingness to suffer and die. And in one of those scenes, there was a group of people during the Black Plague, a group of people who believed that if they whipped themselves and punished themselves, that somehow they would please God and the suffering of the plague would abate. But while I was watching, I was just, there was a young girl in this scene, maybe mid-teens or whatever, that was wearing a crown of thorns. She kept pushing it down on her head. She's bleeding. Of course, I thought about, what you know, <laughs> is that right? Is there a theological principle behind this? But I, I continued to think about that, and the part that I got is, in the end, it's the suffering that Jesus endured. And so it's the suffering we should be willing to embrace as well. It's the suffering and ridicule that he went through. So why not us? Why not us? Jesus was willing to die on top of all of that and count us, us, as more important than himself. That is such a remarkable idea that God in the flesh came to earth as a human being for the purpose of dying and counting us better than himself. For us he died. Christ did not seek his own glory, but sought that which would glorify us and trusted that God would glorify him, and he does. He goes on to say in verses 9 through 11, Paul in Philippians says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. You see, Jesus served us in humility, and God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Humility is essential if we're going to glorify God in our leading, whether it's at work, parenting. Hey, I got to tell you, I've been having to eat some crow lately. Have you eaten crow in a while? You probably, if you, if you don't know what crow tastes like, you're probably not admitting to something that you need to eat. Eat some crow. Here at church, with friends, the child of God always and consistently seeks the glory of the Father, setting our own agendas to the side, Admitting and embracing our brokenness. This is a really important piece. Admitting and embracing our brokenness. God is calling each of us to lead from that place of brokenness. Lead. When I first got called here as the pastor, I didn't know what I was doing. Some of you are probably thinking you don't know what you're doing now. But anyway, 
I didn't know what I was doing. And I lived in this constant state of anxiety because I was like, am I on, I'm constantly being evaluated, basically. I want to do good. I want to prove my my medal. I want to earn my keep kind of thing, you know. But in the end, I realized the harder I achieved, the harder I sought to achieve ability and talent and leadership acumen, the worse I felt. It's because God wants to use a broken vessel, not one who's seeking every opportunity they can to enrich themselves and their abilities. I ask you all the time, some of you, by the way, nominating committees out, you know what's about to happen. Some of you have already given me no's. God bless you. I love you anyway. Okay? Oftentimes, when I ask about leadership, something like, well, I'm not a leader. Jesus would argue against that. He's not looking for your ability always. He's looking for your willingness. And he's looking for your willingness to allow him to use a broken vessel in the life of this church and in the life around us. Our dependence on Christ in this exalts him because, no, we can't do it, but he can. He can. Are you leading with humility? Your family? I hate being wrong. Are you leading with humility in your family, at your work, with your friends? Are you checking your ego enough? Like I said, if you haven't eaten crow in a while, you're doing something wrong. Check your ego. When's the last time you told yourself to get over yourself? It's really important. This is something that I think we need to embrace, is the idea that there's a pretty good chance we're probably being (laughs) self-centered. We need to check ourselves. Second, Christ-like leadership requires sacrifice. So it begins with humility. It requires sacrifice. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at the right or the left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus admits you will suffer. They didn't know it then. That should have been like a gulp moment for them, right? Oh, you will be baptized. Acts chapter 12 tells us that James is killed with a sword at the orders of Herod in 44 AD. The apostle John lives till about 100 AD. He's the last survivor. He's the only apostle who dies of natural causes. And he likely dies on the island of Patmos where he was banished by either the emperor Nero or Domitian where he wrote Revelation. Revelation. Side note. When you refer to the book, there's no S at the end. It's Revelation. That's me nitpicking. I love you, but I'm just telling you. Leadership requires giving up what we want in lieu of what is necessary for the mission. Namely, our mission is to live like Jesus. The glory of God, that is our mission. We give up what we need. We sacrifice what we need to sacrifice in order that God would be glorified. Because of this, by its nature, leadership is costly. It is costly. We used to give extra duty in the military. Someone took us off, especially when I got to like a more management position. Someone would tick me off. I'd say, you know what? I want you to mop all these. We would say swab the decks. I want you to swab the decks in all of these rooms. And then I want all of these windows to shine by the time I come in tomorrow. Okay, I'm packing up my stuff and I'll see you in the morning. Wrong. Suddenly, I wasn't so quick to dole out responsibilities when my chief told me I had to stay with them while they were doing it. Now, many of you parents know what I'm talking about. You punish your kid, and you realize the punishment's worse for you than it is for the kid. When we lead, we give up something of value. It costs us. If you're not giving something up in the way you're leading your kids, in the way you're leading your workplace, in the way that you're leading your ministry, in the way that you're leading your husband or wife, then you're probably not leading. 
Christ-like leadership is painful. I can tell you it's tiring. Craig Groeschel made up a word, he said. I went to this leadership summit, and he says the word is puck, P-U-C. And that was his sermon. He says it's, leadership is you have to be willing to embrace pain, uncertainty, and chaos. Pain, uncertainty, and chaos. And that is very definitely true. Sacrifice is another way of saying, really, we just need to deny, deny ourselves, isn't it? So how are you denying yourself in your leadership roles? Are you suspending what you want in lieu of what's best for the other person? When we see leaders in the Bible, we see these recurring themes, right? So consider Paul sacrificed his comfort, his friendships, his liberty, even his life, head chopped off. In order for the betterment, the improvement, the gospel to go out to all of the nations, Moses sacrificed his own safety going back to Egypt where he was wanted and well-being at the hands of the Egyptians. Then he goes to Canaan where he's threatened by the Canaanites. And then the whole way, he's threatened by his own countrymen, the Israelites. He gave up everything. Daniel risked his life and reputation to stand for the truth even when he and only his few buddies would do it. It says in that book, when everyone bowed down, it said everyone bowed down. All the other Jews bowed. Daniel and the two boys stayed up, stood Sacrifice is only part of the equation. Oh, certainly we must deny ourselves, but we must act on behalf of others in love as well. And so if you look at 42, it says, Jesus called them together and said, You know as rulers of the Gentile, you know, let me rephrase that. Let me start over. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Jesus is saying immediately, That is not how we will lead in the church. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave of all. Point three, Christ-like leadership is expressed in servanthood. If I say service, because I toyed with this idea, if I say service, it just sounds like I'm asking you to join an elected board. It's servanthood. There's an attitude of service in our hearts that must be embraced as followers of Jesus Christ. The world portrays leaders as recipients of service, don't they? Things that are beneath them. At that same leadership summit where I heard Craig Groeschel speak, there was another man who spoke and said he, he was a consultant, like a, um, a human resources consultant trying to resolve conflict in big organizations. And he said he went into a, one time into a place and uh, was listening to the CEO. And the CEO repeatedly said the remark, something akin to this, well, I'm not the janitor. And he kept saying the janitor, like that was his go-to straw man argument for something beneath him. And the man finally said, look, I can give you all of the need, everything you need in this consultancy package I can tell you all about, but in the end, you're the issue. <laughs> you're the problem. Because of your attitude towards those who you believe are beneath you. Maybe you should go sweet. Maybe you should go do these things. That person is of it's the exact same value as you. In some ways, even more valuable. So we need to have this heart, this idea of that we are not above this. We are not above what it is Jesus is calling us to do. The world's idea of leadership is the wielding of power and reaping the rewards of getting others to do what is necessary to improve the bottom line and consequently enrich their advancement, have a bigger bonus, have more power, either materially or whatever. But godly leaders are intended to be primarily givers, laying down our life for our sheep, laying down our life for those people has, God has placed in our lives. 
Sacrifice by itself, of course, is worthless if it's endured for the wrong reasons. Our sacrifices are intended to serve others, first God, and then people. We should be willing to do whatever it takes. We should be willing to to do the hard thing and embrace the hard road because we know in doing so, those who come after us will be that much more like Christ. They will be given an opportunity. We will create space for them where they can choose to embrace the truth and the words of our Lord and become more and more like him as we go. We're all slaves to God. We're all servants in the end. And Jesus calls us to immediate and radical obedience. Something of a truth that I've learned in this life is that we're only capable of leading people as well as we are willing to follow. And most specifically, as well as we are willing to follow God. There are things God is asking you to do and we're stuffing them and we're putting them to the side. Don't expect wonderful things to happen in the way that we demonstrate by example a a Christ-like life. We need to follow the Lord. Listen to what Christ says here at the very end of the text. Last verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Final lesson, Christ-like leadership is motivated by love. It must be motivated by love. The basis and the goal of our leadership, of our parenting, of the way we grandparent, of the way we do ministry, of the way we interact with friends or our spouses, it's the basis and the goal of our leadership, love. Everything we do must reflect who God is. The Bible says that God is love. Everything he does is motivated by his holy love for his people. Leadership not motivated by love de-emphasizes the very thing God has made most important in this world, people. People. Leadership motivated by love elevates those who are being led and fully recognizes them as human beings with their own thoughts, wills, emotions. I say that, but that sounds crazy. I gotta confess, there was a time where I would drive in the car and I would look to people around me in the other cars and I would think they were like, I couldn't imagine that they were real people. Like they had their own lives. Like they were basically just props in a scene of the movie that is Adam, the Adam show. I look back on it and it's astounding to me. Now I daydream. Oh, I wonder what their life is like. I wonder what they do. But we can lead this way. Manhandling the situation and trying to get people to simply do what we want as pawns in our own little movie. That's why it must be motivated by love. Leadership motivated by anything else relegates them, like I said, as to pawns. So not only is it the basis, it's the goal. We want to show the love of Christ because we want what is best for them. To love means to do others unto others in a way that improves them. What is best for them? It often means that we have to not give them what they might want. Parents, Right? The Christian leader is preeminently concerned with the long-term development of the people in their sphere of influence to become more and more like Jesus, whether they're believers or not. Do you hear that? Whether they're believers or not. Sometimes we have to hold people to a higher standard than even they hold themselves to, expecting more out of them than they expect out of themselves because, you see, we have a vision of what could be the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And we call them to that. 
in our parenting. We want to instill values and skills, not make life easier or fun necessarily. Sorry. Ministry, wanting people to reflect Jesus. Wanting people to be more like him because of who he is and how he loved us first. In Christ, Christ, in love, Christ left his perfect abode in heaven with the Father and the Spirit to become like man. In love, he was tempted, mistreated, beaten, and mocked for us. In love, he suffered on the inglorious cross to bring us to glory. In love, he reigns from heaven on the throne of the Father and in our hearts through the Holy Spirit to lead us along the path of righteousness. In love, he will come one day and bring us back to himself so that we will be where he is. And finally, in love, he will restore all things, making everything new and dwell with us for eternity. For where man is, there shall be God. Behold, dwelling place of God is with man. He shall be their God and they shall be his people for love. But until that day comes, while we wait, I always love this one, should the Lord tarry? Let us lead by example now. Remembering that though Christ is in heaven, he is not absent. He sees our hearts. He knows our motives better than we do. He walks with you on your journey and is ever present there to strengthen you, encourage you, even convict you through his spirit to lead like he does. I sometimes think of like Undercover Boss. You know that show? We're talking about leadership. Undercover Boss, a CEO of a company will like, of like McDonald's, will go to a local McDonald's and become like the new fry guy. And they'll dress him up so he's like, or whatever. The CEO of some other ba- will become like the, the cashier or whatever. And then at the end, after these people act like fools, he like pulls his mustache off. Could you imagine that? Oh my gosh pulls his mustache off. He's like, I'm the CEO, by the way, and you're fired, you know. We sort of live in that scenario. We live with Jesus walking with us at all times. One day, he's going to pull the mustache off, right? One day, he will be revealed as the CEO of heaven. And what are we going to do? Are we going to say, Lord, I knew it was you all along, so I did everything right. Are we going to look back on our life and the way we led and loved others, I want to hear, well done, faithful servant. And I know each of you do as well. So Christ-like leadership starts with humility. Christ-like leadership requires sacrifice. Christ-like leadership is expressed in an attitude of servanthood. And Christ-like leadership is motivated and must only be motivated by love. I mean, we don't want to be surprised when the Son of Man is revealed. We don't want to realize all the time we've wasted, all of the opportunities we had. We want to glorify him. And in turn, one day he promises that he will glorify us and give us the very thing that James and John couldn't wait for. So until that day, let's walk faithfully. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you would instill this deep in our hearts. Lord, it's so easy sometimes, I think, for us to not think of ourselves as leaders in certain areas. Some of us don't think of ourselves as leaders at all. Yeah, Lord, and show us the, the power that you've given us, Lord, to set a godly example in the lives of those people who don't know you or who maybe do and need good words, who need encouragement. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters uh, that their life would emulate who Jesus Christ is and the way they demonstrate his person would be rooted in humility and motivated by love. Lord, we love you. 
Because you first loved us, you gave us your spirit, gave us faith. And because of that, Lord, we are forever in your debt. We are forever on our knees before you. May it be reality in every area of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.